Today's case discusses the murder of a young child. Listener discretion is advised. In September of 1992, in Saginaw, Michigan, Shamanica Brown would spend her Friday evening playing with some neighborhood kids. The fun would begin on the front porch of Shamanica's home, but would then move to a playground a short distance away. As the evening would move on and young children would begin to return home, Shamanica's mother, Doris, would grow worried when Shamanica failed to turn back up home. Doris would find that Shamanica was not at the playground when going to look for her. Unfortunately, this would only be the start of her nightmare, as only a few days later, Shamanica would be found, and the search for a murderer would begin. This is Midwest Mystery Files, Episode 21, The Murder of Shamanica Brown. Hello, everyone. And welcome to Midwest Mystery Files. I'm your host, Jeremiah, with just a few quick things before we start. Midwest Mystery Files is a true crime podcast focused on missing and murdered cases within the Midwestern region of the United States. I can be found on all major podcast platforms, as well as on YouTube with delayed episodes. Social media and contact info will be listed at the end of the episode. If you wish to support the podcast and help fund article and record searches, as well as get early access to episodes, bonus episodes, and some voting rights, I encourage you to check out my Patreon at www.patreon.com slash midwestmysteryfiles. If you're not looking for perks, but want to just help out one time, I can also be found on Venmo at MidwestPod. I'm currently sitting at one patron, so I would like to thank Laura for her help. This episode in particular benefited greatly from her contributions. I do also want to shout out the website that is the reason I have any idea at all about today's case. And that website is Our Black Girls. Our Black Girls, started by journalist Erica Marie, is a comprehensive database of unsolved missing and murdered cases involving black females in the United States. Every case deserves equal coverage, but we know that isn't the case about 99% of the time in this country. And, much like with indigenous cases that we talked about in Larissa Lonehill's case, a majority of these cases involving black women and girls have gone under-investigated and underreported in the media. Our Black Girls serves as an excellent resource and memorial to give these women the exposure and chances for justice that they deserve. You can visit the page at www.ourblackgirls.com. I'll also post the link in the show notes. They also have a podcast, also titled Our Black Girls, that I also encourage you to check out. And in that vein of underexposed cases, today's case is the case that I had originally intended to tell at the end of Beverly Ward's episode, as at the time I had very little information. There was such little information that I juggled with the hard decision of maybe not covering it at all. However, The one photo of 8-year-old Shamanica Brown that is available, which I will be putting on social media, portrayed such a sweet and innocent face that the horror of what happened to her, which hits me with any victim, hit me a bit harder than usual, and I was determined to find out all I could. Luckily, at the last minute, I found the information I needed, and while it took a few more episodes, we're finally here. So just know that while I may not be the most consistent individual in the medium when it comes to releasing episodes, 
I do promise I'll always do my best to get the information needed to accurately, and most importantly, respectfully, tell the stories of these victims who are so deserving of justice. With that said, on to today's episode. Shamanica Montrese Brown was born July 15, 1984, to Doris Brown. Not much can be found on the early years of her short life. I do know she had at least one younger brother, and no one is listed in reports as her father. I did come across an obituary for a man that had Shamanica Brown as a daughter, but I could never verify the connection. In September of 1992, Shamanica, her mother Doris, and her younger brother were living in Saginaw, Michigan, in a house near South 12th Street and Anesley Street in the eastern part of the city. Shamanica was attending Heavenrich Elementary School, and she was in the first grade. I can only imagine that that Friday, September 18th, 1992, started like any other day for Shamanica. It was your typical September day in the Midwest, with temperatures hovering in the high 60s and the low 70s. The perfect weather for a young girl who would be getting out of school for the week and would be ready to spend her evening playing outside. In the late afternoon, post-school hours of that day, Doris Brown would report that approximately eight neighborhood kids would come by, and Shamanica, along with the other children, would play on the front porch of their home before heading two blocks east to play at a playground located on South 14th Street and Anesley Street at somewhere around 6 o'clock p.m. As such was the way of childhood at this time, Shamanica was expected to be home by the time the streetlights came on, approximately 7.30. When Shamanica did not arrive home, and she began to hear the sounds of children playing fading from the nearby playground, Doris headed for the playground, most likely expecting to find her young daughter, with whom had probably gotten lost in her fun, and failed to realize it was time to return home. Doris would find nothing of the sort. It's unclear if the playground still had any children at all playing when Doris arrived, or if she arrived to find it vacant. But one thing was for sure. Shamanica Brown was nowhere to be seen. Doris would spend the next several hours, well into the darkness of night, searching for her daughter, but would be unsuccessful in locating Shamanica. It would be at this point that Doris would contact the police to report her eight-year-old daughter missing. From all reports I could find, Saginaw police launched a search instantly and thoroughly combed the neighborhood over the course of the next three days. Officers searched abandoned houses and garages and even dog houses. They would ask neighbors what they'd seen and would search the homes of people who would allow it. But then, on the fourth day, Tuesday, September 22nd, 1992, all hope of finding Shamanica Brown alive would come crashing down and shatter. At 10 a.m. that morning, police would find the deceased partially clad body of eight-year-old Shamanica Brown, located behind a bush in a planter located on the steps of what was at the time the Holy Rosary Catholic Church, located at 732 South 13th Street, merely a block from her home. It's been noted that there were marks on her body, but police have declined to say what. It's also been divulged by law enforcement that an oil-soaked rag was found nearby, and that Shamanica's hair was soaked in motor oil. An autopsy would conclude that she had been strangled. With a new grim shade added to an already grim picture, police wasted little time to attempt to find the unrelentingly horrible human being who could commit such an act on a child. It's been reported by the Saginaw News 
that one 31-year-old Saginaw man was arrested only a day after Shamanica was found, on September 23rd. The man was, however, released after passing a polygraph, and a witness who had reported seeing the man with Shamanica recanted their statement. In the next couple of days, police would release two sketches of a man they wished to question. It was reported that the man frequented businesses in the neighborhood, but they were unaware of his name. I did some digging to try and find the sketches of the man, but was unsuccessful. It's never been reported if that particular individual was found or not. The Saginaw News would report in 2003 that the investigation logged thousands of hours from 75 different city, state, and federal law enforcement officers, with up to six Saginaw police detectives working the case full-time. Despite investigators' best efforts, though, investigators were unable to make a concrete arrest of anyone in the vicious murder. That's not to say, though, that there weren't any suspects at all. In a number of articles from the Saginaw News published between 1999 and 2003, retired Saginaw detective Roy Walton would tell of two suspects, one of which he was sure was the culprit, but could never prosecute. Walton was fiercely dedicated to finding Shamanica's killer, and even after retiring in 1999, he vowed to come out of retirement should an arrest be made possible. To talk about these two suspects, we need to go back to the day Shamanica was found. We stated before that a man was arrested the day after, but was released almost immediately after passing a polygraph test and a witness recanting their statement. While that initial arrest was made from a witness testimony, something far more tangible was found at the murder site. I already noted the oil-soaked rag found near Shamanica's body, but aside from that, something else was found as well. Paint chips and solder. The chips didn't match anything on the building to which Shamanica was found by, so it was clear to police that her murder had most likely occurred elsewhere. While the oil, paint chips, and solder seemed a major mystery off the bat, their origin would be quickly found. It's unclear what led investigators to the four-floor house turned apartment at 1902 Anesley Street, whether it be proximity, as it was clearly visible from the location that Shamanica was found, or if they were tipped off. But this is where the suspects would reside, and the home of the substances from the crime scene would be found. In a garage outside the building, investigators would find a pan of motor oil, pools of oil on the floor, and paint and other paint chips that match the ones found on Shamanica's body. Inside the building, officers would zero in on three men who lived together. In the basement living space of all three men, police would locate a weight bench, and on that, they would find solder. Solder that matched that, found on Shamanica. Out of these three men, one would be cleared almost immediately as a suspect, as he had a solid alibi. This would leave the other two as prime suspects. These two have never been named, although Detective Walton has dubbed one of them as Jack. I will refer to him as such, with the other being referred to as Suspect 1. It's been noted in one article that there was DNA found at the scene of the murder, but while it was not able to positively identify either man as the killer, it also could not eliminate them as suspects. In a June 2003 Saginaw News article, in which Detective Roy Walton and Saginaw County Prosecutor Michael Thomas were interviewed, Suspect 1 was described as being a 42-year-old male with a history of sexual assault. 
The other man, Jack, a man in his early 40s at the time of the murder, has a little more said about him. According to Detective Walton, Jack had served time in prison in an Alabama prison in the 1970s for manslaughter as well as breaking and entering. Walton would further state that a woman who lived in the neighborhood would eventually come forward and tell detectives that she had seen Shamanica Brown walking and holding hands with Jack. When the woman asked Shamanica where she was going, the young girl didn't answer her. It would turn out that the woman had waited and avoided police for two years because she feared for her own safety because of Jack's violent history. Walton would go on to tell the Saginaw News that in 1997, he spoke with one of Jack's relatives in prison, and the young man alleged that Jack had told him that he killed Shamanica. Another imprisoned relative, who was attempting to strike a plea deal, also told Walton that Jack had confided in him that he had killed Shamanica. According to Walton, both men would be administered polygraph tests, suspect one would be found inconclusive, and Jack would be found to be lying. To this, Walton would tell the Saginaw News, quote, We interviewed Jack early on, and I knew he was lying. The case should have gone to jury for determination. He would also note, quote, A whole lot of people in law enforcement agree that Jack was the culprit. I hung on a couple of years to try and close the case. Walton took all his evidence to the prosecutor's office in an attempt to get them to issue a warrant to charge Jack with murder. Due to the evidence being largely circumstantial, though, they refused to issue a warrant. The idea of who the actual killer was does appear to be a point of contention between Detective Walton and Prosecutor Michael Thomas, with Thomas telling the Saginaw News, quote, Roy has always felt that Jack was involved. Other investigations suggested it was another guy. I know of no other names. We never felt we had enough evidence to charge either one of them. Quite frankly, that was one of the problems of the case. This was a thoroughly tested process. We couldn't sustain our burden of proof. We're not going to charge someone who didn't do it. There was some good, credible evidence referring to the other guy. Thomas would also state that he didn't believe both men were directly involved in the murder, but that it was possible Jack knew something about the girl's death. While the two men have disagreements on the main culprit, they do agree that regardless of who it was, they most likely knew the neighborhood at the bare minimum, but most likely lived there and knew of Shamanica. Walton has also noted a lack of cooperation from people in the neighborhood who he feels may know something, but refuse to come forward due to fear of retaliation. Walton would tell the Saginaw News in September of 2002, quote, I know for a fact that there are several people in this community who know what happened to this little girl. Should one or several of those people speak up, I'm quite certain we would be able to get a warrant. We're so close. I've seen a lot of dead people, and it's all unfortunate. But this is a child. It was wrong, and it's absolutely wrong for people to have knowledge and not share it. I can't understand how you could know something about a child being killed, an innocent child, and not tell someone. Unfortunately, if either man was responsible for the murder of Shamanica Brown, they both took it to their graves. Suspect 1 died three months after Shamanica's murder. Jack would go to prison in 1997 on federal charges of owning a gun as a felon. He would then pass away at the age of 54 in April of 2003. 
No cause was specified for either person's death. To this, Roy Walton only had to say, quote, As a police officer, I failed Shamanica. While things seem grim on the hope of Shamanica ever getting true justice she deserves, and with part of that being due to the fact that people who may have known information about the murder chose to not come forward, that's not to say that family and members of the community didn't do their part to raise awareness or keep Shamanica's memory alive. In the early days, after Shamanica was found, her grandfather, Jimmy Lee Brown, offered a $500 reward for information about the murder. Danny Watley, the cousin of Shamanica, would host a weekend-long event at his salon to raise another $500. Crime Stoppers would offer $1,000 for information. As we unfortunately already know, though, the reward would never be collected on. Another cousin, Mike King Smith, would write and record a song about Shamanica's death titled Can't Let Go. It was played on local radio stations. Outside of the family, the Saginaw AmeriCorps program would plant a six-foot Bradford pear tree near the entrance of the Saginaw Children's Zoo in Shamanica's honor. Furthermore, residents of Saginaw County donated more than $10,000 to a memorial fund in Shamanica's name. The funds raised went to purchase safety materials for 1,700 elementary students. Additional funds went toward a scholarship that was awarded by the Saginaw Community Fund in 2004, the year Shamanica would have graduated high school. The award was presented by Shamanica's mom, Doris Brown, and Detective Roy Walton. In a letter to the editor in the Saginaw News, the vice president of the Saginaw Community Foundation would cite the event as, quote, the only positive outcome of that unsolved mystery. After a 2003 article from the Saginaw News, the one in which both Detective Walton and Prosecutor Michael Thomas were interviewed, there's no more to be found as far as direct coverage in Shamanica's case. She's featured in a list from Michigan News website, MLive.com, published in 2015, that featured a list of unsolved homicides in Saginaw. Aside from that, though, no other Michigan media that I could find has written about the case. I'm not sure any national news has ever covered Shamanica Brown's murder. Overall, after the death of Jack and the case, it seems like any focus from the media or even local authorities on Shamanica has wavered, with a few Reddit posts, our black girls, and a few Facebook posts taking up the slack to keep the case alive. With the case being beyond cold, with little sight of it heating up, we're now only left with theories. From what I can tell, there's never been any other theory among investigators other than the one pertaining to the two aforementioned men, Suspect One and Jack, which concluded that one of the two men were responsible for Shamanica Brown's murder. Based off what we as the public know, this theory holds a lot of weight based off what circumstantial evidence we know of mainly being the substances found on and around Shamanica, The paint chips, the solder, and the motor oil were all substances found in the apartment and outlying garage where the two men lived. Furthermore, the playground, the apartment house, and the church where Shamanica was found are all in extremely close proximity to each other. According to reports 
the playground was located on the corner of Anesley and South 14th Streets. The apartment the two men lived in is located on the corner of Anesley and South 13th Street. The location of the church where Shamanica was found is a little confusing. There is a church across the street from the apartments, but according to Google Maps, it's addressed as 1905 Anesley Street. That church is known now as the Rima Worship Cathedral. Shamanica was found at 732 South 13th Street, which at the time was known as the Holy Rosary Catholic Church. Oddly enough, according to Google Maps, the building at that address is a two-story structure located to the northeast of the cathedral, which puts it facing South 14th Street. There appears to be a bookkeeping service there now, but there is a cross on the building signaling that it was at one time a religious building. If this all confuses you, don't worry, it does me too. But I just wanted to make note of that in case anyone looked at the area on Google Maps. I wanted to clarify that it doesn't appear to be the actual cathedral that Shamanica was found at, but the building just to the northeast of it. From what I can tell, the playground is no longer there. There is currently another church building directly to the east of the cathedral at the corner of 14th and Anesley. If I had to guess, that's where the playground was located at at one time. On Google Maps, I could go as far back as 2008. At that time, the corner was clear. But the three other corners all had structures on them. If you haven't already pulled up Google Maps to try following along, I will post some views on social media and mark out everything I'm talking about the best I can. Regardless, what I'm getting at is that all these locations were less than a minute walk from each other, where Shamanica was found was two minutes at the absolute most. The culprit could have left the apartment, went to the playground, took Shamanica back to the apartment, and then taken her to the church with minimal effort. The two men were administered polygraph tests, with Jack indicating he was untruthful and suspect ones being inconclusive. However, I and many other people in the true crime community don't put a lot of stock in polygraphs. They're often unreliable, and as such, are not admissible as evidence. I do find it interesting that Roy Walton and Michael Thomas seem to be split on the idea that it was one man or the other, and not both. Obviously, we don't know all the evidence, but Prosecutor Thomas, while never citing any of it, seems to maintain that they had more evidence on Suspect 1. Detective Walton, while not ever being overly specific, is a little more lax when talking about Jack. Citing a witness who saw Jack with Shamanica, two family members confessing that Jack told them he did it, and several other alleged individuals who Walton claimed had information but would refuse to come forward. I'm not going to speculate the reason why, as I don't have anything to direct me to a conclusion, but I have always wondered what was in the evidence that seemed to have both men believing that only one of the suspects could be responsible with each official having a differing opinion on who they believe did it. Doris Brown also appears to believe Jack is the culprit. While the Sagadon News was supposedly never able to get a hold of her, per statements in their articles, Doris did write a letter to the editor in 2002, on the 10-year anniversary of Shamanica's death, in which she states that her and Roy Walton know who did it. 
one can easily conclude that she is most likely talking about Jack. Now, Doris is obviously a grieving mother. One can easily accuse her of being blinded by grief and latching onto false hope that it's the man Walton says it is. But you have to think. She lived in that same neighborhood. She probably knew these individuals, or at least knew of them, and probably heard the same things Walton did from local people. This was all in her backyard, and it only makes sense. She could also have a reliable and firm belief in who took her daughter from her. I do want to note, while speaking about Doris, that at the time of Shamanica's murder, there were several rumors going around that Shamanica was killed to pay a drug debt that Doris had. Detective Walton has confirmed himself that there was never any basis in those rumors. With only one real strong theory, and only two strong suspects as far as investigators are concerned, suspects that have both passed on, one may pose the question as why I would cover this case at all. Well, that's simple. Neither of those men were arrested, charged, and found guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. Whatever evidence there was, prosecutors unfortunately felt it wasn't enough to press charges. Whether that was the right call or not, I can't imagine it was easy, knowing you could be that close, but not being sure you can pull the trigger. This means, though, that while it most likely was one of these two men, there's still a chance that Shamanica's killer is out there, and that someone holds the knowledge as to who that person is. Whether it's information that brings a new suspect to light, or information that finally confirms what investigators and Doris Brown have known this whole time, it's beyond time Shamanica's family was given the absolute closure to this tragedy that they deserve. This September will mark 30 years since Shamanica was ripped from this world. I've spent a lot of time talking about Suspect 1, Jack, and even Detective Roy Walton. Unfortunately, much like Beverly Ward, not much has been put out there about Shamanica's personality, what she liked to do for fun, or what she might have wanted to be when she grew up. Whatever it was she wanted to be, though, she unfortunately never got to be it. She never even got to change her mind several times before deciding as a young woman. No. Instead, she went out on a beautiful fall night. A night that should have been full of fun and cheer. And at least one depraved individual, if not two, felt it was their right to strip her innocence from her before taking her life. And in that moment, a daughter, a sister, and a cousin was stolen from those who loved her so dearly. Shabonica should have turned 38 years old this month. July 15th was her birthday. From what I can tell, this area of Saginaw was rougher than some others, and I know that sometimes in areas such as that, it's common for people to keep quiet, even when it means solving a crime. In this case, though, if Detective Walton is correct, and people aren't talking that know something, I find it impossible to excuse them. Knowing what happened to that little girl, I can't imagine how one could stay quiet. I don't know if someone who knows something is listening to this, but if you are, I know. I'm just a guy scolding you through a microphone. Not much of a threat. But I implore you to finally say something. After 30 years, who do you really have to betray? Or to be afraid of. If it was Jack or the other guy, they're long gone. More time has passed since Jack's death than between Shamanica's murder and his death. 
there's no reason to stay quiet any longer. To quote Doris Brown in her 2002 letter to the editor in the Saginaw News, quote, Someone knows what happened to her. I hope that whoever you are, you never have to go through what I did. Because one day, you're going to realize that your biggest mistake was not getting this murderer off the streets. I wonder what type of person knows something about a child's murder and doesn't say anything. You're worse than the murderer. If you have any information on the murder of Shamanica Montrese Brown, please contact the Saginaw Police Department at 989-759-1289. If you're looking for any further information, there is not much really available. There are a few Reddit posts and Shamanica's page on ourblackgirls.com. There are also several articles from the Saginaw News archived on newslibrary.com. I highly encourage everyone to share this episode, or any sources you may choose to look up. Almost nothing has been written on Shamanica's case in almost 20 years. It's high time we get her name back out there. If you wish to let me know what you think happened, have case suggestions or comments, or just want to follow me and the show on social media, I can be found on Instagram at Midwest Mystery Files, Twitter at Files Midwest, and on Facebook by searching for Midwest Mystery Files. You can also email me at midwestmysteryfilespod at gmail.com. I do also post photos and sometimes links relevant to each case on social media, mainly on Facebook and Instagram. Lastly, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, please feel free to rate and review the show. This helps make the show more visible in searches, and more importantly, helps bring attention to the cases I cover. Thank you to all who have done so already. Take care, everyone, and I will see you all next time.